Welcome back to the Path of Longevity show, and I'm your host, Dr. Robert Lufkin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Stephen Sidoroff. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of podcasts, uh, Health Longevity, uh, the Path of Longevity. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Sidoroff, and I'm very pleased today to have an old colleague, a friend of mine, Dr. Mario Martinez, uh, in this interview. Mario and I go back a long way when I was the director of a treatment center in, in Santa Monica, Moonview Treatment and, and Performance Center. And Mario was one of our experts that we called in. And uh, so very happy that he's here with us today. Mario has developed a, a, a unique approach uh, to neuropsychology, uh, cognitive psychiatry, psychology. And um, Mario, welcome to our, our podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. We haven't seen each other in a long time, so this is uh, wonderful. Yes, I, I know. Yes, welcome. It's, it's so good to see you. Thank you. Uh, Mario, let's get started by just uh, giving us, uh, the audience, a sense of your uh, your j- own journey, how you got into psychology in the first place. Well, uh, I started with uh, at the University of Madrid in medicine. I uh, would this is a long time ago, and I started medicine. And but then during the Franco years, uh, there was a lot of turmoil, and the the medical school was the most radical. So I would go. And they would close the school for months. So I said, okay, I'll take some psychology courses for a while. Then it went on. This went for about two years. I said, okay, I can't do this anymore. I was going to do uh, neuropsychiatry. I said, no, I'm going to psychology. So that's how it happened. <laughs> oh, wow. Cool. But uh, cool. but it was always very biologically based, very um, um, uh, neuropsychological in that sense. So it was a really nice transition. <clears throat> nice, nice. Well, I know you've developed um, a mind-body culture paradigm that you refer to as biocognition. Can you share with the audience what what that is? Uh, yes, uh, we we all know that mind and body communicate with each other. That's uh, something that that is a given now. What I'm adding is the cultural context of that mind-body connection. Uh, and from your work also, you know that, that the brain is cultural. We learn what, for what our culture tells us, uh, what I call the culture editors. And uh, so then our culture will tell us how to age and it will tell us uh, what the portals of, of uh, uh, cultural portals are. And without knowing it, we buy into that and our body and our mind respond based on the beliefs that we have. And so that that's basically by bi- uh, biocognition. And then I bring it into psychoneurology and I ask my, I ask them, all right, so what are the consequences with the, with the hormones and the anti inflammatories and all that? And that's where, um, where these uh, PNI comes in, but PNI doesn't look too much at culture. So what I'm bringing is culture to psychoneurology, and and although the brain is the brain, we have a a very collectivist brain that learns collectivism from the Asians and and from the Westerns and uh, individualist kind of brain, and their consequences. But the interesting thing is that centenarians, independent of where they come from, they're outliers and they have a way of looking at things, which is what I've been investigating. Yeah, you you mentioned centenarians, and of course, our podcast focuses a lot on longevity, and I know that's been an interest of yours. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, You talk about the compensatory processes found 
in centenarian, centenarians related to inflammation and inflammaging, which of course is the topic of our recent summit. So I'd love to hear what, what you have to say about that. Yes, and I think that, um, Stephen, the, the, the way to look at it is framing it so we can understand it better, not with conventional biology. Conventional biology had to borrow entropy from, from, from physics and from order to disorder. When you look at it that way, these things don't make as much sense. But when you look at it the way that I do with complexity, which is more from, from simple to complex, then we begin to see that there's some compensatory things that happen as you grow longer and longer into uh, the, the health span rather than lifespan, how many years you spend healthy, which centenarians do, there's some compensatory processes that go on that we're trying to understand that don't make any sense from, this, from, the, from the entropy for, model because we should be deteriorating and, deteriorating, and that's not how it works. There, there's some, for example, um, centenarians in the caucus, the, the horsemen of, of, uh, of the caucus, they eat a tremendous amount of dairy, uh, and they have clogged arteries and everything without any symptoms. They die falling off horses or in their sleep. So it has some kind of compensatory process. And then I'll talk about inflammation as you, uh, later if you want me to. on how. But the interesting thing is that very little work has been done with centenarians, especially, especially with the, with, uh, the uh, glyconization. And, uh, and they, they mostly have been looking at the acute markers that everybody looks at. But the acute markers are not really the best uh, predictors. The more the what I call the default mode is more like what Gordon Luck and people like that are doing, which is looking at at what is the what is the systemic inflammation that that we have to look into to as a predictor for biological age. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the Caucasian, Cauca- uh, the centen- centenarians. From the caucus. From the caucus. Yeah. Right. You got it right there. <laughs> what, were, what were you finding in that population? In that well, that the uh, that they shouldn't be as as healthy looking as they were, because when the studies that they look at their their cardiovascular and they they see the usual things of people who eat a, a lot of dairy and and that they have some some clogging and they have some some obstructions, uh, like some that have hypertension. And it, it seems like the and one of the, one of the thinking is that uh, gradually what's happening is their their arteries are, are adjusting and compensating for the tension for the blood pressure, and is not affecting what the normal population would be affected with. One third of them have uh, uh, white coat hypertension. <laughs> uh, they they're just they smoke not not much, but the key is they do do everything Aristotelian, very moderate. They don't abuse anything. So there's some comp- compensatory mechanism that's taking place that allows these uh, people with clogged arteries to not die from cardiovascular disease, or at least not until they get close to 100. Um, do you have any idea what that compensatory mechanism might be? I think, and this is, of course, we're just hypothesizing, but I think from what I've seen and I'll talk about the inflammation in a minute so you can see how it comes together. I think that what happens, I, I study, rather than conventional gerontology, which studies the, the pathology of aging, I study, I study the causes of health and the process of growing older, which is different. Mm-hmm. So what I think is happening is that the longer that we spend on the causes of health, which is uh, uh, the, the health, health span, that in itself 
is a compensatory process that's going on. So it's like we're healthy to this level. So we've learned more health at 40 than we had at, at, at 20. And the immune system, the nervous system, and the endocrine system begin to find compensatory ways to deal with that usual aging process to keep you within that, that health span because it's the causes of health. So what I look for is how do we trigger the causes of health? Mm-hmm. And, and, and another one that's even more interesting, very, very recent, uh, last year, uh, and uh, some uh, uh, Chinese um, uh, researchers have been doing, uh, Lixing Zhou, what they found is that they, as you know, as the uh, the inflammation, they looked at, at, let's say, all the adults were with, in their 80s, and then they look at centenarians and semi-supercentenarians from 105 up. So they find that the usual inflammation uh, keeps going up as they as you get older so the the centenarians have a little bit higher than the 80 so what is a compensatory they found that there's a ratio of the uh uh t helper cells with the t regulatory cells and that ratio as you grow older although the people in their 80s the tr the the, the ratio looks like uh uh like the old uh people centenarians Although they have that inflammation, the, the ratio of the uh, T regulatory and, and T uh, helpers is more like the young people in their 20s and 30s and their 40s. And that seems to be one of the compensatories for the, for the usual inflammation that, that, that would affect other people. Very interesting. And that's very recent studies. And so it's, a, it's very uh, incredible, the beautiful things that are going on. Yeah. So as you focus on culture, and you're looking at this population that has these centenarians, what do you notice about their culture that might be uh, contributing to the protective factors of their aging process? Well, that, that's an interesting question because I think that uh, when I first started 25 years ago looking at centenarians, I thought, well, it's got to be some genes, so the, the Methuselah genes. There's no gene. There's, there's no magic bullet. There's no genetics. It's only 20%. So I went to Cuba, and I, and I started looking at one sentence. One woman was 102, and um, I asked her in an anthropological way so I wouldn't bias it. I said, what, what are the, instead of saying, what are your rituals, what are the things that you do that have meaning for you, that you do it and you look forward to it, and, and, and it gives you kind of a sense of connection with yourself and Oh, I have a, a shot of rum before I go to sleep. I said, oh, it's got to be the Cuban rum. I got to look at that. Next day, I go to a, to an, a man and I ask the same thing. He said, the Cuban cigar. So I thought, oh, the Cuban cigars and the alcohol. So finally, it, it just kind of beat me up and said, it's the ritual that has that immunological enhancement. Mm-hmm. The meaning that you, and, and I, I would push the limits. I would say, well, how many shot of rums do you have? They say, if it's that good, one. Why? Because that's all I want. Uh, there are no centenarians who are obese and no centenarians who are addicted. They, of course, they, you don't live that long, but but they have, and the, with the cigar, the same thing. No, just one. That's what I. That's all I want. It just gives me great pleasure. So that was one of the components. So what I found is that independent of the culture, some are more collective and some are individual. They're outliers. They find a way of dealing with the world that is, is different. For example, some of the cultures will help that a little. But you have to get out of the of the pail. You have to get out of the fishbowl to be that outlier. Mm-hmm. So even the Okinawans, so Okinawans, which are one of the blue zones and so forth, the centenarians are, are not the same as the general population. 
Mm-hmm. Another thing that's going on that's very interesting is that some countries and even the United States, longevity is not going as fast as it should. And actually, in some cases, it's going down. But centenarians are the fastest growing segment of the population. And it's not because of medicine. You know, medicine is great, I think, but they hardly go to the doctors. And uh, so they're, they're doing something from that collective unconscious or the morphic field or whatever it is that gives them information that tells them this is how you have to be intuitive. And what I've done with the Longevity Center in, in, in uh, Poland and Germany, it developed a questionnaire to see how close you are to those factors and how you perceive the world neuropsychologically. And then we're going to be able to correlate them to the biomarkers with uh, glycan and everything else. And But the good news, as you know, is that that's reversible. If you're low on one, we can reverse that. And we've been able to show that you can actually reverse the biological age years. Um, mm. So it's very exciting work. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. How are you measuring the biological age? The biological age with the glycan, glycan age is one of them. And uh, they you can you can look at the usual markers like uh, C-reactive protein and all that. But they're, uh, Gordon Locke is basically using the, the glycan the, uh, and the IgGs, the N-glycan, and that seems to be a powerful predictor. And then later, we'll do some interventions, and you see that the actual, that biological marker, but it takes it takes. Uh, weeks, just like the you can't change the uh, default mode in, in a couple of days. You can you can change uh, um, tumor necrosis factor in a few minutes, but not the glycan. Th- that takes a while. It takes weeks and sometimes even months. But right. once you do it, your biological age begins to uh, to reverse. Mm. So you've mentioned glycan a few times now. Can you explain to our audience what you're referring to? Yes, glycan glycan is in in all the cells like a like a furry uh, cover of the cells, and what uh, uh, these people at uh, at Genos and other places have found, but especially Gordon Locke, is that if you look at at the uh, IgG, which is one of the five antibodies, you look at the IgG and you study how the glycan is is functioning in the IgGs you can generalize to 90-some percent of, of those cells. So if you look at the IgG by itself, it's a great predictor to tell you how your systemic inflammation is going. And then based on that, you can you can make changes and, and you can see the actual biological changes. Uh, but but it's a kind of thing that uh, that is not so much uh, affected by the, uh, by the acute markers. So, for example, if somebody says to you, you're such an idiot, your tumor, tumor necrosis factor will go up and your and your uh, inflammatory molecules will go up quickly from someone saying something negative like that. But then it goes down if you do relaxation or if you begin to look into it. But but the glycan doesn't work that way. It's more systemic, more uh, more of a, a stable, but 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 re, but changeable. So is it an inflammatory proton protein uh, glycan? It's it's an inflama- inflammatory uh, um, uh, sugar, um, poly, polysaccharide, uh, that, or, or actually what it does is that it, uh, the glycan in the cells, uh, works with, uh, the, how, how pro- proteins are going to be processed, but also very interesting in the, um, ratio of inflammation and anti-inflammation. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that that's so important. Mm. Got it. Got it. Sure. So I, in in my own work, I talk a lot about, and I've mentioned the concept of primitive gestalt patterns, which is basically the lessons of childhood that we incorporate into 
how we deal with the world. And I talk about how our ability to adapt gets frozen to our childhood lessons, making it more difficult to adapt as an adult. I I think about culture in that context, but I clearly you have really put an emphasis on culture and studied culture. Can you share with us how you um, you think of, in terms of culture impacting our psychology? Yes. First, let me tell you what your theory is brilliant. <laughs> it's really right on target. Um, what happens is that, as you said, the, the, the primitive gestalt and what I call the, the um, culture editors, we're designed to pay attention to culture editors because the moment we're born, you have to go to the breast or the bottle. And that culture editors becomes very powerful in, in dealing with not only your survival, but your meaning making. And those person, as you say, they shape your realities, which then becomes your default mode. But an example you look at uh, with the functional MRIs, which are given us a lot of information, which is for your audience, uh, when you when you do real time, you see what the brain is doing with the MRIs, with brain uh, with the uh, blood movement, and you can have uh, people from from Asian cultures, and you can say, okay, talk about yourself, and that's going to be pre uh, mid frontal lobe, and uh, talk about yourself, talk about talk about your mother, talk about your friends. It goes somewhere else. I mean, it stays here. It stays here. The uh, Western cultures, talk about yourself, talk about your mother, talk about your friends, and go somewhere else. So the, the collectivist, even the self-concept, stays in that area because of the cultural components of the collectivism. Um, the um, menopause. Menopause, for example, in, in Uruguay and other places, they call it bochorno, which means shame in Spanish. And even the doctors who know that it's hormonal and so forth, they say she's having symptoms of the shame mm. when they have the, the hot flashes. Mm. And it's they have a lot of problems with self-esteem, libido, mm -hmm. inflammation, uh, and just a, a general depression. And you would think, okay, that's a hormonal thing. You go to Japan, they call it konenki, which means a second spring. They look forward to it. They don't have they don't even have a word for hot flashes. When you ask them in Japanese, mm -hmm. what is it? Japanese, they say hot flashes. They don't have a word for it. Because they, they, the culture tells them this is something that you're going into. Number one, in, in a position of, of um, leadership and mentoring other women, mm -hmm. they're going to be more sensuous. All these things are eradicated by the cultural, um, uh, uh, the, the cultural uh, causality that you give. Right, right, right. Yeah, that is that's very powerful to think about how the messages of the culture shape our thinking and behavior. I'm I'm thinking about how uh, the different cultures view aging and view older people, where in Japan and, and Native American cultures and others, uh, they revere the elders for carrying the wisdom of their yes. of the culture. Whereas in the United States, uh, it's very different. Uh, what's your right. experience around that? Because that, no, you're right. that directly it impacts aging, uh, the aging process, right? And, and it's more difficult because, again, the, look at the culture. In some countries in, in, in Europe, social services will give you a cane at 55 because they tell you you're going to need it eventually. <laughs> so you start using the cane and your, your psychoneurology and your neuropsychology will, will, will become cane, uh, cane consciousness. 
But what I find, though, even in the United States, which I agree with you completely, aging has a negative connotation and, and nursing home consciousness. But, but when centenarians, even here, are, are uh, revered and, and they're treated differently than, than, than other people like in Loma Linda and other places that I've been to the United States. And, and they, they, so they, they get a special status, but it's a hell of a job to get there. And the culture doesn't help you in any way. Because you're already thinking in that terms of that that uh, from from order to disorder, and even medicine, as you know, will support that. Because you go to the doctor and and you uh, you have this problem. Well, what do you want for your age? Uh, that kind of thing. That that causality that says, well, yeah. what do you want for age? What I want for my age is uh, I have a friend who's a physician, and he he was about seventy eight, and he went to a colleague because he was having some problems with his knee, his right knee. And he says, look, I'm having some problems here, maybe a little inflammation. So what do you want for your age? He says, I want the same thing that my left knee has, which has no problems. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so it, it, that's that kind of mindset uh, yes. that you learn average, but you don't learn the, the, the tales of the curve. Yes. Uh, and and, and these, these culture editors will support that aging process. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember... Um... When I first came to Los Angeles, I worked with a, a professor, uh, and then I'm, you know, I went my own way after a few years working with him. I saw him many years later. I was very happy to see him. I, I saw him right in front of my my clinical practice office, and I go, "Murray, good to see you." And he's, I said, "How are you doing?" And he goes, "I'm old." <laughs> yeah, like that. yeah, that's a that's a sentence. What do you want? Or, or uh, I guess I'm okay for my age. Right. You right. know, the best anthropological work I do is in, in the men's locker room when I work out. Because a guy walks in and, and how are you doing? Well, I guess I can't complain. Uh, how are you doing? Well, it's my age. My doctor said it's that kind of a mindset. Yes. As, as if that were reality rather than a cultural imposition. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, so mindset is so important in this process and is so important in our health in so yes. many so many different ways uh, part of my work is to help people break away from their primitive gestalt patterns that where their ability to adapt gets gets sort of frozen and locked into that into um, a new grounding where they're more tuned into what's going on in the world right now and responding to the world right now without sort of being pulled back into that gravitational pull. How do you how do you address cultural straitjackets, cultural imperatives that also uh, impair our functioning, impair our thinking because we're locked into those cultural patterns? What I've done is I've looked at again, looking at cultures. What what is the what what are the common denominators of how cultures punish you to stay within the pale? And what I found was that three I haven't found any more, fortunately, abandonment, betrayal, or shame mm. are the ways that they get you out of the uh, out of coming uh, getting away from. Them. And each of them has psychoneurological implications, especially shame has a lot of uh, inflammatory. I've worked with hundreds of, of uh, women with uh, fibromyalgia and other inflammatory kinds of problems, and a huge percent of them have some kind of a shaming wound. Mm. 
Right. Well, that's one of the first things. So I try to identify what what is the shaming wound that you have from when you started breaking away and started breaking from the from the confusing cues that they tell you succeed, but deny it or minimize it when somebody notices it. I, I love your shirt. Oh, it's an old shirt. I love your hair. I haven't washed it in three days. The value of the gratitude that you would receive, the oxytocin and all these things, is killed. Right, because right. You're, you're, you're killing it. So you're getting a mixed message. And the other thing then is that we, what I call the besting effect. We, These people, as you say, they're, they're, they're very powerful, these culture editors. And then all of a sudden you begin to succeed. You can't best them. You have a ceiling there. You can't best them. So what I teach them, and, you know, with kind of a contemplative methods and so forth. Number one, what is the archetypal wound and what is the antidote? And number two, how are you dealing with the besting that you have to best your parents? That's the, the best parents are the ones you can best. Uh, so those things I use, but I also found that there are the antidotes of the three wounds are for 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 abandonment is uh, is commitment to self, for shame honor to self, and for betrayal loyalty to self. And one of the things that we're going to be doing in in uh, in Germany and and Poland. Is something that I've shown clinically, but I haven't been able to show at the psychoneurological level, is that honor is anti-inflammatory. When you develop honor consciousness, it, it's incompatible with the reign of shame. So why is it that if somebody says, you're a wonderful person, I love who you are, you get oxytocin, and if they say you're an idiot, especially a culture editor, you get inflammatory molecules because we have bioinformational or biosymbolic beings always looking for meaning. And when a culture editor says that, I'll give you an example. When I was nine, I went to a doctor, and I've always had a, a white white coat uh, hypertension. And the doctor said, this boy is going to be hypertensive. And I had a hell of a time dealing with that, even though I know all these things. So, you know, finally, one day, I go to a cardiologist, and he did all kinds of tests, and he said, no, you're not hypertensive. What is this? Never again have I had uh, white coat hypertension. So... <clears throat> Did you need that authority to free yes. you from that? Yes. And mm. I'm getting close to not needing it, but I still do. Centenarians don't need that. That's mm. the key. They don't need that. They 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 validate themselves, which is very right. difficult. Yes, it is very different. Um, it's nice when when you get the message from an authority and it does help you, but you're still dependent on some outside source. That's right. That's Ultimately, right. in all of what we're doing, the goal is to resource, have the resource within yourself. Absolutely. To be able to give yourself those messages. Completely. And that's what I do. I teach centenarian consciousness so you can become your own confirmation. And they go. it goes the other way, too, with a nocebo. They go to a doctor, and a doctor says, look, you got to take this medication, this medication. What is this for? What is that for? I'm taking this one and I'm not taking that one. You need to take that medication. So, nope, I'm not going to sue you if anything happens to you. I'm not going to take it. And again, another one that I asked about that was, what does your doctor have to say about it? I don't know. They're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, And I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm saying that's how they deal with the world. So they have a, confirm a, a confirmatory process that doesn't require the culture editors that, sh that shape them initially. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm just reflecting on a couple of clients I've just seen recently, and they are aware of how the old pattern 
doesn't serve them. And yet they're afraid to take the step forward. And when we get down to it, you know, hey, you know, this is not served you or this is is holding you back. And this is you recognize you can understand why this doing it this way, different mindset, um, taking certain risks to, of new behavior will be good. When we get down to it, they're afraid to let go. They're they're afraid. They say, yeah, it's sort of like the, the, the devil that I know rather than what I don't know. So they're willing to say stay stuck because it's familiar to them. And it's because what what it's what they've done all their all their lives. Very much. And and the, ever, can you give us like a case example of somebody that you've worked with where you've helped them move past something like that? Many of them come with the same problem as you know, as a clinician, you know, they just come with it because there, there's an intellectual process that's necessary. You have to bring some logic. Hey, look, but th that's that's necessary, but not sufficient because they they learned it at the at the emotional fabric it's part of the fabric and what i do is what i call the theater of change and as i i teach them you first you do relaxation then you go to quieting the mind and then you go to the contemplative and the contemplative is where you rewrite the script mm -hmm. and you confront the the archetypal wounds that that taught you not to question the gods and then you begin to practice it but also Rather than just doing it once, okay, now you have very, very weak neuromaps there. They ha it has to be practiced over and over to create the neuromaps that give you the strength. So, for example, you have someone who would feel that if they broke away from, from, your, from the primitive gestalts, they would be experiencing the shame that taught them to stay within that. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the antidote would be honor. So what you do is you always give, bring them... Uh, to a place of evidence, because the brain needs evidence. When were you honorable in your life? When were you honorable at, at that contemplative state? Well, I did this and this and this. Okay, now embody it. How does that? How do? What is it that you? Where is it landing? That is your signature for honor. For the next few weeks, I want you to start practicing honor consciousness and see what happens. Mm. And then the default mode begins to change because you're giving it new new evidence mm. with embodied evidence. Um, and I find that to be pretty effective. Mm, cool, cool. So people listening, uh, if they're dealing with shame, if they're dealing with a low self-esteem, they can start identifying moments, times in their past where they felt that ex the positive, uh, positive experience where they did honor themselves. And then bring that into the present by embodying it through imagining that historical experience. Yes, and and, and I think I I see that it uh, that that it changes. Uh, and the other thing too that I found that's very interesting, and I'll give you one case that kind of uh, generalizes. It, it, these kinds of things are very vulnerable when you're doing really well. Because they have to keep you within, as you said, your 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 primitive kishtas. You just don't the ceilings of abundance just don't get too high because the gods will burn. <clears> you. <throat> mm -hmm. So this man that I saw came in to see me. He had a, a very interesting inflammation in his left hand. So uh, they did all kinds of things. He had medication, but it just wasn't working. So we did the uh, the archetypal wounds, 
and he was he came from a small town in 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 uh, upper new york and his father was a town drunk mm-hmm. he he uh bet someone when he was drunk that he could eat glass of course he died so he was the the, the drunk who who ate glass the, the shaming that he that he lived with he didn't know that he was living in shame so anyway he gets to a point where he becomes very successful and he's doing really really well and he's he's building condominiums and then his joy was to play the Cuban drums. Uh, so guess where does he get the arthritis? Left hand. He can't play the Cuban drums. Uh, the joy has to be killed because he's got to pay the price. He can't, uh, he can't do that. We did the technique where he goes to, in fact, uh, since you don't know much about uh, your shame, it's very hard to know your honor because you don't, you don't do it. And so we went and, and looked and looked. It was hard because he had a real hard time finding it. When were you able? When were you able to really feel like you were honorable? Something that you did that was honorable. So finally, he comes up with one when when we're doing it, you know, in a contemplative state. And he said, "Okay, I remember." He explained it later because he has to practice. I remember I was in the uh, in the fifth grade, and I was a big guy. And this bully comes over to beat up this little kid, and I stood up and I defended him. I didn't know that was honor, but I felt very proud of myself. Okay, good. All right, so let's bring that memory and other memories. And begin to embody them, begin to embody them, and begin to feel that they're going to your hand, which sounds crazy, but you're really doing some, you know, if we're, we're like uh, holograms. The next day, he called me and he said, the inflammation is still there, but the pain is gone. Mm-hmm. Three weeks later, the inflammation and the pain were gone. I followed him for nine years. Never again. He could play his drums. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen, as you know, as a clinician, it doesn't happen very often. But that it's it's information that tells us, well, you know, if you if you hit it right, you can change all kinds of histories that that have been enslaving you. Yeah, and in the old days we would say it's all in your head, but now of course we know that thinking emotions translate directly into physical symptoms, how the body functions. So it's all everything is connected to everything else. Very and much. And the the good news about that is that our thought, we can direct our thoughts. So we can direct our thoughts in a positive direction that then helps our physiology and and the neural connections in our brain as well. Very much. And I think that, um, as you know, what, what psychoneurominology is outstanding, but they have concentrated too much in stress and not enough on inflammation. Now it's more, but for, for years and years, well, it's got to be the... The uh, the cortisol and norepinephrine that's nice, but but it's more than that. So when they started looking at the um, at the inflammation, for example, one of the first studies uh, that was done, uh, Margaret Kennedy, uh, she looked at the difference between guilt and 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 shame. But for the first time, she looked at tumor necrosis factor, one of the uh, molecules of inflammation, and they found that and, and very interesting, as you were saying, the mind how it directs. All they had to do was to write for 15 minutes about their guilty uh, experiences or 15 minutes about the shameful experiences. The ones who were guilt-ridden uh, or the guilt uh, group had high levels of stress but low levels of inflammation. Mm. If they hadn't done that, they would have thought, okay, look, uh, when they went to the to the shame, they found high levels of inflammation but low levels of stress. They wow. would have said um, – Guilt is more dangerous than, than shame, and it's the other way around. So for the first time, they find that, why do, do, do I think? Well, because um, 
guilt has less of a disempowering effect than, than shame. Shame is something that is done to you. Guilt is something that you did and you have agency and you did it. So it's a stress related. But when it's helplessness, it goes more to the inflammatory kinds of processes. Mm. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, something to think about. And uh, what's exciting about that simply is that there was a psychological process, two psychological processes that differentially separated out the stress response from the inflammation response. Amazing. And mm -hmm. as you said, by, by our thinking, of course, I think our thinking is our mind body thinking. And, and but yeah. uh, so when people come, you know, every illness has something to do with inflammation. So it's more than stress. Right. Um, stress is uh, depending on on what uh, uh, how you interpret stress. Um, sure. Um, and uh, oh, something also very interesting that's that's fairly new. Um, Aristotle was right about the the immune system. Uh, uh -huh. Twenty three hundred years ago, Aristotle said, "Look, the the hedonic life, pleasure for the sake of pleasure, not enough." You have to have what he called the eudaimonic, like eudaimonia life, which is, as you were saying earlier, it's very interesting when you said it, pleasure and meaning service, very important. Mm -hmm. So they looked at groups and they psychologically looked at, okay, you could be determined as a hedonic and you could be determined as a eudaimonia by the way you live. And they looked at something very specific in the immune, in the immune system, a CTRAs that, that, are, that are genes in the immune um, cells that have to do with inf inflammation or anti-inflammation, uh, antibodies and antiviral. The, the eudaimonia people had better response to adversity than the hedonic. The immune system could tell the difference, even though their level of pleasure was the same mm. uh, subjectively, the immune system could discern. Nice, nice. So nice. those are really good pieces of information that we can yeah. use. Yeah. Well, again, I I think this is the new direction of how we can tease out the components here. Yes. That they each can be addressed individually, as well as uh, together. Very uh, much. You talk about four factors uh, of healthy longevity. What are those four factors, Mario? I, I look at them. I first started at, as an anthropo as an anthropologist. I don't want to bring psychological testing. I just want to be a part to see how they perceive the world. And then, okay, see how they perceive the world as a neuropsychologist. And what I found is four factors on perceiving the world. One that, that are important. One is time consciousness, how they perceive time. The other one is aging consciousness, how they perceive aging. The other one has to do with health, how they perceive health. And the most important, the self-valuation consciousness. And each of them has a neuropsychological component. So, for example, if you have the an age, con the uh, let's say the time consciousness, they believe they have all the time in the world. Mm. You ask them, uh, a hundred and one year old man, I said, "Well, this garden looks really good." And he said, "Wait till you see it in three years." <laughs> Somebody else said, "If I'm here next week, what does that do? It takes you out of the urgent present, which brings down the cortisol. Mm. People that the urgent present cortisol, as you know, and those things. So it has immunological consequences for living that way." Mm -hmm. um, the aging consciousness yeah. they by the by the way that time sense i find that to be one of the key 
causes of problems with stress, time pressure, feeling completely. Time pressure. Yeah, completely. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing in gerontology that that I've been challenging is that you know in geront- in conventional gerontology, not all, but they say, well, look, as you grow older, you're going to think that time is flying. And part of it is because probably some brain function, but part of it is because you have less and less time. Not like that at all. Centenarians don't have the problem. And the component is curiosity. If you have curiosity, your time perception becomes elongated. You you have a, a long, and, and so it has a, a sense of giving you all the time in the world if you're curious. Curiosity is one of the components that's very important. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you're aging or anything like that. And when you ask them, you say, "What? Uh, when did this happen? They'll say, oh, maybe about 10 years ago and it was 30 years. They they elongate time by by thinking. So that elongation of time is what you take into the future and then you think you have all the time in the world or you don't have a lot of time in the world, mm-hmm. which has consequences, on, you know, as you said, with the stress and so forth. But so time is extremely important. Cool. Cool. Very good. Well, this is a fascinating conversation, uh, Mario, and um, uh, you talk about cultural neuro, psychoneuroimmunology. Has that gained in um, in ad- adherence to it? Or how's it's that, very slow. How's that going? How, you, how is your effort to get more and more people to be aware of it? In Europe, more than here, but here, even here, um, um, there, there's some interesting how other uh other disciplines will influence another. Some anthropologists are beginning to take psychoneuroimmunology to the field. Uh, McDade, Thomas McDade, and others. And so they're finding that it's not what you're doing in the lab. There's a lot more than going on there. So, so there, there's a there's a movement in that in that area, but it's it's going slowly here. It, it, it's more open in China. They're very open with the with the cultural components, and and of course in in the people in uh, in Poland that I work with and. So uh, there's uh, in 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 South in South America also, uh, but also in Costa Rica, which is one of the uh, new zones. There, there are several centers that are looking at these kinds of things. So I, it's moving slowly, but I think it's it's going the right way. People are beginning to see that that the old model doesn't really predict very well. Yeah, right. True. True. So I have one last question. Sure. Uh, you talk about the empowerment code. Can you tell us what you're referring to and say a little bit about the empowerment code? The empowerment code is um, is really taking biocognitive science to organizations, taking it to organizational science. And then what it is, is that, uh, again, the cultural components, let's say a CEO comes into a to a, an organization and they have a mission statement and they have a vision statement. But what that CEO is bringing is his or her cultural history to be spoken fluently. And then it could be an empowering or disempowering culture. And what is empowerment in in the empowerment code? Simply access to resources to overcome a challenge. That's empowerment. If you don't have access to resources or you don't use it, you go into helplessness. And the immune system, I think, is bimodal. It's either empowered or disempowered. It's not in the middle. And then I break it down into, into two parts that the immune system does implicitly, which is E1 and E2. E1 is what can I do for myself that nobody can do for me? And that has to do with your resilience model too, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you exhaust that, then what can others do for me that I can't do for myself? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that we teach in organizations. Number one, decentralized. Number two, give power at the local level. 
and give access to resources. Motivation, in my humble opinion, is a manipulation. It's rat psychology. What, what people want is meaning and empowerment. Um, when you give them meaning and empowerment, they stay with you. If it's a motivational thing, it's a fix. You give them a fix and they have to need, need another fix, another fix. Mm-hmm. But if you give them meaning, two things that I found that make people sick at, at work. One, you give them a job without meaning or you give them responsibility without authority. They get sick. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yes. work. So that's kind of like what I do with And then the CEO has to come in with the right archetype. Another thing about archetypes is archetypes are these old models that have been from 150,000 years to Homo sapiens. This works. That doesn't work. Father, son, the archetype has to be father. or It, it can't be anything else. Uh, uh, you can't be lover. It can't be anything else because you, your system breaks and all kinds of things happen. And the first thing that I do is assess the CEO and the CFO and the HR people, what archetype are they bringing in? They have to be, the CEO has to be a, a, a primary archetype of the visionary. But he also has to be the regulator because if he's just a visionary, he's all over the place. And he, the CFO has to be the opposite, has to be the regulator with some vision. So anytime you go there, you say, no, you can't do that. You can't afford that. You got to have that. If they don't live within those archetypes, they start getting sick. 75% of them that I work with have all kinds of gastrointestinal problems or hypertension. And just by working with giving them the right archetype, Steve Jobs, for example, visionary, but he burned out, but he just couldn't come out of the visionary and be a father, be a, be a husband. He burned out. Of course, he had all kinds of things going on, but still. One CEO that I worked with in Philippines, he was bringing the visionary home, the wife, to daughter, to son, just by getting out of that and, and making agreements with himself, not only quarterly agreements for profit, but quarterly agreements for wellness, he agreed that at six o'clock, he would stop being a visionary and would become a father. Mm-hmm. That alone helped him with all kinds of cardiovascular problems that he was having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, it's, it's tried for hundreds of thousands of years. So it's like trying to use a hammer to screw something. It doesn't work. Yes, it yes. yes. Yeah, so that's my my eighth pillar of resilience is flexibility. Yes. And that's what you're talking about there, not to get stuck in one model, not to get stuck in one archetype. And that's have right. the flexibility to use what's appropriate for the environment, for circumstances, and being able to make those shifts. Completely. And that's tremendously important. Yeah. Let, let the context di- dictate what you need. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I agree completely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're we're very parallel with our ideas, and I'm I'm really uh, glad that we finally talked. Nice, nice. I appreciate it. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Mario. I I really enjoyed it. Thank you for uh, joining me, and uh, we'll have to do this again soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, and congratulations on the work you're doing. By the way, thank you, thank you, and you too. Thank you. Thank you. This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of health care diagnosis or treatment or the creation of a physician-patient or clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this to be on the value of please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel 
And we take the, your suggestions and advice very seriously. So please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we hope to see you next time.